Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and capital markets regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on significant developments in U.S. corporate governance and capital markets regulation and CII's related advocacy activity. This update covers the period from August 30th to October 3rd. The following is my top 10 list over that period. Number 10. On September 19th, U.S. Securities Exchange Commission's Office of the Investor Advocate published a study evaluating the impact of mutual fund performance benchmarks on investor decision-making and strategic behavior by firms and concluding that investors respond to benchmarks. Study included an examination of two items. One, the use of benchmarks by mutual funds using a large and comprehensive data set of funds in 12 sectors. And number two, the reaction of individuals to various benchmark presentations in a large-scale experiment. The study found a variation in the way that funds use benchmarks and that many individuals react quite strongly to different benchmark presentations. The study's findings also included the following three items. Number one, although many respondents gave survey responses that suggested they were inclined to regard the benchmarks as marketing devices selected in order to show the fund in a valuable light rather than as a decision viable reference tool, participants did not entirely disregard benchmarks. Two, the most sophisticated participants were more reactive to benchmark presentations than lower sophistication participants. And three, the distinction between narrow and broad benchmarks and the narrative descriptive text about the benchmarks do not have a differential impact beyond the position of the benchmark. The study was included in the comment file for the SEC's August 2020 proposal to comprehensively revise the mutual fund and exchange-traded fund disclosure framework. Number nine, on August 31st, the Council of Institutional Investors responded to Institutional Shareholder Services' annual Global Benchmark Policy Survey, offering input on a wide variety of topics. The topics are part of ISS's annual policy development process. Later this fall, the proxy advisor will release key draft policy updates and open a public comment period on key proposed changes to its voting policies for the next proxy season. In terms of dual-class shares, an issue about which CII has been extremely outspoken throughout its history, ISS announced that beginning in 2023, it may recommend votes against certain directors at U.S. companies that maintain a multi-class capital structure with unequal voting rights, including companies that were previously grandfathered or exempted from adverse vote recommendations based on the date they went public. Proxy Advisor also explained that plans to apply a de minimis exception in cases where the capital structure is not deemed to meaningfully disenfranchise public shareholders. For example, where most of the super voting shares have already been converted into regular common shares. The survey asked respondents what percentage of total voting power held by owners of the super voting class would they consider de minimis. The choices range from 5% to 20%. CII answered not more than 5%. 
survey then asked respondents if they would consider any other factors relevant when determining whether a company should be exempt from an adverse vote recommendation under this policy. Those factors included the degree to which ownership of super voting shares is dispersed, whether the company is controlled by current officers and directors, and whether there are any limitations on super voting rights. CI's letter said none of these factors is relevant. Any capital structure that disenfranchises public shareholders is problematic, and there are no mitigating factors under CII policy. When deciding which directors are appropriate targets for adverse vote recommendations due to a capital structure with unequal voting rights, CII said it generally would be all members of the governance committee. But in certain circumstances, it might be necessary to consider voting against all members of a board. CII also said it supports a sunset provision of three to seven years for multi-class shares and other problematic governance structures. In the survey, CII notes that its policies state that a majority of common shares outstanding should be sufficient to amend company bylaws and take other action that requires a shareholder vote. It adds that supermajority votes should not be required to change the bylaws because they can be used to frustrate the will of the majority. CII also weighed in on survey questions about climate-related issues, as well as those on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Number eight, in a September 15th letter, the Council of Institutional Investors encouraged the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board to take action on several key reform initiatives. In response to requests from the PCOB for feedback on its draft strategic plan, CI urges the board to prioritize its project and quality control standards, noting that it should address the outstanding recommendations from the Department of Treasury Advisory Committee on the auditing profession. CI's recommendations included three items. One, the largest audit firms to have independent directors on their boards whose duties include resource allocation decisions, the annual review of the quality control system, the effectiveness of remediation of quality control concerns, and the integration of audit quality into incentives and rewards for personnel. Number two, audit firms to establish and disclose quantifiable performance measures. And number three, audit firms to disclose publicly their quality control systems with larger audit firms producing public annual reports and include audited financial statements and that incorporate information about their governance structure. But it also encourages the PCOB to allocate resources to new approaches to improving dialogue with and input from investors, including the establishment of at least three investor advisory group task forces that could develop and publicly issue, number one, comment letters based on established due process procedures to encourage more high quality responses, to the PCOB's public request for comments. Number two, annual survey, standard setting priorities of PCOB, encouraging responses from individual members of the investor advisory group, individual board members, PCOB senior staff, and the general public, and a report summarizing those survey results. And number three, an annual performance review of the PCOB's activities and accomplishments in pursuing each of its statutory duties and commentary on how the board's performance might be improved. In light of the increased use of technology-based tools by auditors and financial statement preparers, CII also supports assessing whether there is a need for guidance, changes to PCOB standards or other actions. 
Those actions could include a review of the use of inline extensible business reporting language and its implications for the auditing profession. CI's letter also supported the following three items. Number one, streamlining internal processes to enable more timely release of PCAOB inspection reports. Number two, rigorous enforcement of audit requirements that may be violated by accounting firm looking to avoid uncertainty about whether they are in compliance with the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. And number three, increasing the transparency of settled enforcement actions by more frequently naming the companies or broker-dealers involved in the penalties levy. Number seven, in a September 1st joint letter, the Council of Institutional Investors and the CFA Institute asked the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission to assist investors as well as other stakeholders by making SEC correspondence with public companies available in a structured, machine-readable format. Public companies tag their financial filings with extensible business reporting language, a machine-readable language designed to enable efficient searches of multiple companies across industries. By contrast, comment letters the SEC routinely sends to companies get uploaded to the Commission's website in a PDF format that requires manual analysis. Letters said that providing this data in XBRL format rather than in PDF format could help tag comments related to financial statements and link them to U.S. GAAP taxonomy and tag comments related to information outside of the financial statements. The key topics within filings present management views on key issues. Number six, on September 29th, Council of Institutional Investors weighed in on the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission's draft 2022 to 2026 strategic plan and offered some suggestions on the commission's proposal to update its disclosure framework. Letter supports the commission's overall plans to modernize the design, delivery, and content of corporate disclosure. It also recommends that when updating sustainability disclosure, the SEC should work with other regulators and standard setters, including the International Sustainability Standards Board to limit disclosure fragmentation in the global market. CI's letter also advises the commission to evaluate the following four CI membership approved factors when issuing rulemaking to update its disclosure framework. Number one, materiality to investment in voting decisions. Number two, the depth, consistency, and reliability of empirical evidence supporting the connection between disclosure and long-term shareholder value. Number three, anticipated benefits to investors now cost of collection and reporting. And number four, the prospect of substantially improving transparency, comparability, reliability, and accuracy. CI's letter also supports uh, the SEC requiring companies to use inline extensible business reporting language and reiterates CII's request for the commission to also make SEC correspondence with public companies available in a structured machine-readable format. Number five, on September 22nd, Three members of the U.S. House of Representatives, led by House Financial Services Committee Ranking Member Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, sent a letter to U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler, arguing that the Supreme Court's recent decision in West Virginia versus EPA cast doubt on the Commission's authority to develop, finalize, and implement a broad swath of regulations, including its proposed climate change disclosure rule noting that the court invoked the major questions doctrine 
to conclude that an agency must identify clear congressional authorization for the authority it claims, the lawmakers assert that the SEC's climate disclosure and special purpose acquisition company rulemaking, among other proposals, require a clear delegation of authority, which Congress has not yet provided. Accordingly, to ensure the commission does not operate outside of statutory directives, they request two items. One, a list of all pending rulemakings and specific congressional authority for each rulemaking. And two, a list of all expected rulemakings and a specific congressional authority for each rulemaking. Number four, on September 27th, House Financial Services Committee Ranking Member Patrick McHenry of North Carolina published the Committee Republicans' Capital Formation Agenda consisting of legislative proposals intended to strengthen public markets and increase opportunities for all investors. The proposals include two bills. Number one, H.R. 294, the Encouraging Public Offerings Act. This legislation would provide statutory authority for issuers to test the waters with potential investors, allow investors to submit a confidential draft registration statement for review prior to public filing or within one year after an IPO registration. And number two, H.R. 4262, the Increasing Investor Opportunities Act. This legislation would permit a publicly offered closed-end fund to invest up to all its assets in private securities. Many Republicans also plan to allow more Americans to access private markets, including by pursuing policies to expand the accredited investor definition to include any person who invests not more than 10% of the greater of their annual income or net asset. In addition, the committee minority intends to focus on initiatives intended to increase efficiencies in filing and pricing for emerging growth companies by reducing the minimum time between the first public filing and IPO pricing and permitting a spinoff of an emerging growth company to benefit from the two-year financial statement accommodation that currently only applies to IPO registration. Number three, on September 23rd at the Council of Institutional Investors Fall Conference, in connection with a plenary session entitled Washington Outlook, the SEC and Congress, Raquel Fox, a partner at Skadden Arps, Slate, Meager, and Plum, who focuses on SEC reporting, compliance, mergers and acquisitions, and corporate governance at the law firm, and yours truly, offered a preview of what to expect from the SEC and Congress. Ms. Fox, who worked at the SEC for nine years, said she has never seen such a rapid rate of rulemakings coming out of the SEC as under Chair Gary Gensler. As for what's next on the SEC's docket, Ms. Fox predicted it could be proposed rules on corporate disclosure of human capital management. She said the principle-based rules on this topic previously issued have been criticized for producing boilerplate disclosure. Ms. Fox predicted that the new proposed rules would call for more specific disclosure about issues like workforce turnover and attrition. She also said six smaller rulemakings related to market structure could be coming out any day. Among those would be rules related to best execution and payment for order flow. Ms. Fox predicted that proxy plumbing issues are not likely to be addressed anytime soon. She said there's just too much there. 
as Fox stated, that while the SEC said it wanted to finalize its climate disclosure rule before the end of the year, most likely they will be issued within six months instead. She noted that the commission received more than 14,000 comments on the rules and proposed scope three disclosure and materiality thresholds have stirred up controversy. She asserted that regardless of when the SEC finalizes climate disclosure rule, the rules will be challenged in court. Finally, Ms. Fox forecast that SEC rules on corporate disclosure of share repurchases could be out in final form before the end of this year. Number two, on September 4th, in response to an invitation to comment on the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission's semi-annual regulatory agenda, the Council of Institutional Investors sent the commission a letter listing the topics that it hopes the agency will prioritize in its rulemaking. I also applauds the SEC for issuing final rules on pay versus performance and universal proxy balance. In the letter, the I encourages the SEC to act on the following five issues. Issue one, listing standards for recovery of erroneously awarded compensation. CI wants to see the SEC implement the clawback rule mandated by the Dodd-Frank Act, which would require listed company boards to establish a policy to recover unearned executive compensation in certain circumstances. Commission recently reopened for a second time the comment period for its 2015 proposed clawback rule. In response, CI sent a letter June 24th urging the SEC to include both little r and big r restatements in the list of incidents that could trigger clawbacks of executive pay. Issue two, disclosure of a quantitative reconciliation that generally accepts accounting principles of non-GAAP metrics used to determine executive compensation. CI urges the SEC to act on a 2019 rulemaking petition that it filed with the commission. The petition recommended companies include in their compensation discussion and analysis disclosures in their proxy statements an explanation of why non-GAAP measures are better for determining executive pay than GAAP measures and a quantitative reconciliation or a hyperlink to a reconciliation in another SEC filing of these two sets of numbers. Issue three, improvements to Rule 10b-5-1 trading plans. CI recommends that the SEC implement the improvements to Rule 10b-5-1 trading plans that are proposed in December 2021. In a March 24th comment letter to the SEC, CII strongly supported the proposal with some modest changes. Issue four, proxy process amendments CI's letter expresses disappointment that improvements to the proxy process are classified as long-term action of the regulatory agenda. Now that the universal proxy rule has been finalized, CI urges the SEC to prioritize as the next step improving proxy plumbing by addressing end-to-end vote confirmation. Issue five, equity market structure modernization. Letter says CI believes that the SEC should issue a proposed rule that includes provisions addressing best execution and stock exchange rebate. It asks the SEC to consider proposing a new best execution rule with provisions that allow the commission to enforce a standard under which each investor is entitled to receive the best execution of their orders on an order-by-order basis. The letter also asks the SEC to propose that stock exchange rebate fee schedules be structured so that the total rebate benefit received is more transparent and investors can understand the amount of rebate relating to their order at the time of trade execution. And the number one most significant development in U.S. corporate governance capital market regulations appeared from 
August 30th to October 3rd, occurred on September 15th, when the U.S. Senate Banking Committee held a hearing on oversight of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. SEC Chair Gary Gensler discussed topics ranging from climate risk disclosure, the public company accounting oversight board's inspections of audit firms based in China. In his testimony, Chair Gensler highlighted the SEC's proposed rules on climate and cybersecurity risk disclosure, pointing out that currently investors are making decisions based upon information about climate and cyber risk. He said hundreds of companies are already disclosing such information pursuant to disparate frameworks in a manner that lacks consistency and reliability. Explain that as a result, the SEC issued proposals to help bring investors greater consistency, comparability, and decision usefulness to such disclosures and enhance the conversation that is already going on between companies and investors. So far, the commission has received more than 14,000 comment letters about the rules proposing to require disclosures from public companies about climate-related risks and 140 comments on proposed rules to improve cybersecurity disclosures. That includes comment letters from the Council of Institutional Investors on both proposals. At the hearing, several senators from rural states expressed serious concerns about how the SEC's proposed rule on disclosure of climate-related risks, and in particular provisions requiring companies to report on their scope three emissions, will affect farmers and ranchers. Senator John Tester of Montana said, if the public companies that buy supplies from farms ask the farmers for data about their emissions, the farmers do not have the resources to provide that information. Chair Gensler responded that that was not the intent of the proposed rule, and companies do not have an obligation to ask for that information. He emphasized that public companies would have to estimate their scope three emissions only if the companies deem it material or they have made public comments about tracking scope three emissions. SEC chair also emphasized that the rules are work in progress and could change. Senator Patrick Toomey of Pennsylvania, the ranking member of the committee, said he thought the proposed climate risk disclosure rules were a way for the Biden administration to inject its political beliefs in the capital market. He also questioned whether the SEC has the authority to implement them. Senator Toomey urged Chair Gensler to rescind the rules and warned if he proceeded with implementation, you will find unsympathetic court. Senator Jack Reed of Rhode Island asked Chair Gensler about the difference in the level of disclosure between private and public companies. The SEC chair acknowledged that the number of large private companies have grown substantially and the disclosure and investment protections they provide are not at the same level as public companies. Senator Reid said that he and Senator Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada have introduced the Private Markets Transparency and Accountability Act, which would require certain private companies to file 10Ks, 10Qs, and 8Ks. In response to questions from senators, Chair Gensler explained that the Financial Accounting Standards Board will be coming out with new rules on tax reporting for companies doing business overseas and the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board will be updating its independent standards for audit firms providing consulting services. Chair Gensler applauded the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board for signing a statement of protocol with the China Securities Regulatory Commission and the Ministry of Finance of the People's Republic of China that provides a framework for PCOB inspections and investigations of audit firms based in China and Hong Kong in cases where the firms are auditing 
Chinese companies that are listed on U.S. exchanges. Chair Gensler stipulated, however, that the agreement will be meaningful only if the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board can actually inspect and investigate completely audit firms in China. If the PCOB cannot, roughly 200 Chinese companies will face prohibitions on trading in the United States. That completes my monthly corporate governance and capital markets update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening, and happy Halloween. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.